Welcome back to Killer Fun. This is Christy. I'm Jackie. And we're so glad that you're back with us today. Today, we have the first episode of Exhibit A, a new Netflix documentary series just came out at the end of June 2019. And here we sit talking about it. It's a... Yeah. Okay. So I suggested this because I had watched the first seven or eight minutes of it. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. We should talk about this. And I didn't watch anymore. I said, you know, I'm going to stop so I can come into it nice and fresh for this episode. And now I, I don't know. I I have thoughts. Me too. It was interesting. I'm not entirely sure it's very balanced or fair. It feels... It reminded me a lot of Making a Murderer. It feels like that. It feels... They have an agenda. Like they have an agenda. It also feels lacking, I don't know, entertainment might be the word. okay. (laughs) I felt like it was interesting. It did point out some things, but it did have this weird... I don't know. It's it's an intangible kind of thing. Like I don't know that I could tell you scenes from it and support my theory here. I'm just telling you that in general, it was sort of boring and had oh. this PBS feel. Okay, like this PBS. It's lacking the it factor. Yeah, there's no it factor at yeah. all. Okay, but it was, I guess, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I liked some of the creativity of how they edited. Yeah. <laughs> editing. This is our ringing endorsement of the show. Yeah. Editing. The editing wasn't half bad in some ways. Um, but I, I just Jackie's felt there. struggling for something positive to say. I'm really this. struggling because I don't want to hate it. I wanted to succeed. And so I feel bad, but I just felt like it, they just tried too hard. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It felt yeah, forced. Well, That's the word. It felt forced. I find that as I watch these things, even when I don't like something, <clears throat> national treasure, <clears throat> um, I enjoy it more when I start thinking about what else can I dig into and research to build an episode of Killer Fun. And then I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. Ooh, well, then there's this. So, you know. See, I think the thing is about entertainment in general, even if it's true, even if you're doing a docu-series or a documentary or any of those kinds of things, I think what makes it really successful is that it is really more than the sum of its parts. And this had a lot of parts. Mm-hmm. That and were individually sort of interesting, but together they made well, nothing. Yeah, yeah. It was created by Kelly Lodenberger. She's credited as a writer here, but she was the director for another Netflix original called The Confession Tapes. And that was a show about sketchy interrogation tactics. So I, I've read a lot of things. People who liked that show tended to like this show. People who didn't like this show. They're like, this is just like the confession tapes. And here's why I find it problematic. And the same problems that they had with one, they have with the other or the same reason why they like it. They is the reason why they like the other. So I do feel like it's a bit of a niche style. It's just very specific. And I don't think I enjoy it 
but and I could I could find some legitimate things to harp on them about. But overall, I thought it was a, a well done show. I just sure. didn't enjoy it. I felt like it was more Nat Geo, and I'm more Smithsonian. Okay, you know what I'm saying. Well, and it's interesting that you bring that up because that was going to be one of my things. Is you kind of think it's going to be about examining the flaws in forensic techniques. And really, it's more about how forensics failed a person in the justice system. Yeah. 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 Where, you know, either it was applied improperly or not used correctly at all. <sighs> I, yeah. Read an article and they suggested that you, they loved it and they said you should watch the trailer for it before you decide if it's for you and... They said after watching the whole series, which we only watched the first episode of this, <laughs> that it's that you shouldn't trust the criminal justice system, which I'm like, uh, that doesn't seem right to me. That it seems okay. I can see how you could get that from this. That they made it very much made it out that the police were out to get this particular individual that they had. He had a target on his back that they had a objective they were working toward. I, you know, that's a individual situation. That is one side of the story and we don't really get the other we side of the story. We don't get the other side of the story. And we think- only get the summary of what actually happened in the courtroom, kind of. We don't really get their side of the story. We don't get the evidence. But I thought the whole thing about the video was interesting. So like the first five to 10 minutes, I was pretty riveted because I was, I was like, they had some, they had some really quotable quotes, man, you know, about objectivity and the video and how it's um, improper to ever say we're certain about something. Like I loved how they really started to bring out the nuances of the scientific process. So I was really in there with it. I was in their corner uh-huh. Right up until that guy was interviewed. And yeah. then I was like, I'm done. I don't know. You're like, I'm done. And I would turn this off, except Chrissy's going to make me talk about it. And so I'm going to watch it. But I was like, nope, this is not what I was hoping okay. for. Well, let's recap this. Yeah, let's so recap. So if you haven't seen it, you can either go and watch it or you can listen to a recap. If you don't have access to Netflix, few people don't. It starts off with this really thought-provoking talk about universal truths, which I was like, ooh, that's what drew me in. Yeah. I was like, oh, it's oh, so interesting. Yeah, humans aren't good or perhaps even capable of identifying universal truth, that no scientific analysis is perfect. Technology can help get us closer. Then they have uh, Grant Fredericks, and he's a video expert, and he's giving a seminar to the Oro Valley Police Department in Arizona. And it was really interesting with this, you know, this woman looks like she spontaneously combusts. But when you slow down the video and look at it frame by frame, you see that somebody else had a lighter. And that was what happened. And Grant Frederick says that video is just another witness and you need to interrogate it just like any other witness. I'm like, this is amazing. That was quote of the day. Yes. Right there. Yes. Cameras aren't, their reality and reliability aren't a given. And he just briefly mentioned, for example, Patricia Hearst. And I was like, oh, I'm going to have to talk. I'm going to have to look up 
that much because I kind of knew a little bit about it, but not enough. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. I can't wait to talk about that. Yeah. But I love the example that he gives. So he shows the frame rate. Yeah. Example. And With if you don't gun? know what, yeah, oh. if you don't know what frame rate is, um, well, my husband could explain it better because he's good at it. But basically, like they said, video is just a series of pictures. And so it depends on how many pictures it takes, you know, per second. If you take so many per second, you get one video. If you get so many per second, you get another. And so he yeah. shows what a higher frame rate and how it can capture multiple shots. But if the frame rate's low, right. then you only get the two. Right. And you're actually missing all of this other stuff. And so that was such an important illustration. Yeah. That. Uh, they talked about six frames per second as opposed to 12 frames per second as opposed to 24 frames per second and you get so much more information the higher your frame rate is we'll talk about that a little more too in a little bit Ooh, good. and then they jump into the case of george powell so he was a musician Can I <laughs> we put use that, that word lightly yeah I, i'm you know we're gonna take a little grace we're gonna take a little bit worse and, and um, i'm gonna put a disclaimer right here right now we are not saying that because he was a rap artist no it's not the rap or itself or anything i know a lot of people you either love it or hate it kind of situation yeah. so you might be tempted to think that we're air quoting this because he was in rap and that's not it because i actually kind of love rap um and, and some of his lyrics weren't half bad he, he does have a mind for for thinking and poetry in a way. I thought he, he does do a good job of uh, taking a, a thought and giving some, some life to it and giving it something to present. I don't know. But in general, when it's all put together, it was, bless his heart. <laughs> there's, there's nothing like a Southern lady saying, bless your heart. It's either the nicest or the most horrible oh, thing somebody could say to you. Yes, it really is. So he was promoting his rap music and his album largely to the military population in Killeen, Texas. Um, He was staying in a hotel, paid nightly. Elise was the manager there. And she said she was very familiar with him. And then she said, well, he acted black. (laughs) And then she said... I'm not being racist, but yeah, I love and that. I'm like, if you ever have to say I'm not being racist, but you need to rethink some of your life choices Yeah, because what, it, whatever comes after, but is going to be racist. So maybe f- find another way to give your impressions. Yeah. It was a, Oh, it was, it was, it was so a good. rough statement. Yeah. Elise said that she, witnessed George antagonizing the police. George says that they targeted him unfairly. And then there's a string of convenience store robberies and they all seem to be committed by the same person. So then they talked to Sherry. She was working in one of the convenience stores that was robbed. And she said she actually knew George She called him the CD guy because he was trying to sell CDs, I guess, I'm sure, to people in the store on a regular basis. But he also went in there and bought things and whatever. So she was familiar with him. And, you know, he was a tall guy. And when the convenience store got robbed, she said, yes, they kind of looked like one another. But the suspect, 
the guy who actually did the the perpetrator, I guess he'd be a suspect to the police, a perpetrator while you're in the store with him. Yeah. Yeah. Was her height about five, six, five, eight, somewhere in that neighborhood. She was pretty much eye level with him. They put footage of the robbery that happened at Sherry's store on the nightly news and said, anybody who has information call crime stoppers. Well, Elise decided it looked like George and she called crime stoppers. There was another witness, a different cashier at another convenience store. And she, from a lineup of pictures, chose George's picture out of the lineup, but said she was steered towards him. Like they covered up all but two pictures and said, which one looks like him. And she chose George's picture, but in her description also said that the robber of the store was five, six or five, eight that about that height. George is six, three. So the police have the footage from several different incidents in these convenience stores. They have surveillance footage not great footage no not great footage the the frame rate i think is perhaps an issue here resolution is an issue too the the resolution's not great you don't ever get a clear view of his face he's wearing a hat and sunglasses that can make it much more difficult to identify somebody they bring in michael knox who is a forensic expert Maybe <laughs> again with, uh, with air quotes uh, again, that you guys can't see. Yeah. Uh, expert uh, from Jacksonville, Florida. And he examines the surveillance footage and says that the actual suspect is actually six feet, one inch about, which would put him much closer to George's height. And based on this evidence and some videos that Michael Knox makes, they convict George and send him to prison for 28 years. Michael, the expert, used what's called photogrammetry to determine the height. And the program that he used is called Photomodeler. And he says that he feeds known measurements into the software to get measurements of other things. So of this software, Michael says, it really doesn't get much more objective than that. And And that's our first, like... Caution flag. Well, and I literally yelled at the television, really? Really? We'll get to that, too. (laughs) (laughs) So then then we meet Tamara, a woman from Canada, who read an article about how inmates who have a pen pal have lower recidivism rates. So she goes on writeaprisoner.com which kind of looks a little like Tinder for prisoners. <laughs> I was like, okay, because they all have pictures. I went and looked at it. just And they have like pictures and interests. And I'm like... Well, and they showed, they showed his little profile page. And, um, and George, George was nice looking on his little profile page. Yeah. 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 Okay, I, I have to go look at that page. Okay. Is that a real page for real? Yes, it's a re- for real thing. Oh, right. A prison. It auto filled. <laughs> That's interesting. Must be 18 or older. Yeah. Look at here. Yeah. It's kind of like, hey, I'd like to write a prisoner. 
Here's their Tinder profile. And it's interesting that it looks that way because she left Canada, went down to meet him after they had written letters to one another and spoken on the phone. And now they are engaged. She came down to meet him and never left. I never left. I never left. So Tamara has an interest in law and started looking into George's case and finds that prior to George's investigation, Michael Knox, who was the forensic expert, quote unquote, had never done a height analysis before. This was the very first time that he was doing this. In 2013, Texas passed what's called a junk science law that targets the poor use of accepted forensic science and the use of less credible techniques. So either you do it wrong or you're using a technique that's not appropriate, not accepted. Right. Its efficacy hasn't been proven yet. Yes, exactly. So Tamara files a complaint with the Texas Forensic Science Commission. They review the case in 2014 and found merit. They bring in Grant Fredericks from the beginning of the episode, who was giving the seminar to the police department in Arizona. And he looks at it with fresh eyes. He comes in with no pre-drawn conclusions, no information, no... All he knows is this guy's been convicted. Here's the evidence that they looked at. And he looks at it. He uses his own software where he takes a 3D scan of George himself and then inserts him into the photographs that they have and finds that the suspect is actually much, much shorter than George. Grant claims that Michael didn't follow the proper methodology for photogrammetry. It's a hard word to say. It is a hard word to say. (laughs) And that he didn't visit the crime scene prior to the analysis. Now, he did visit the crime scene prior to testifying in court. The night before, he went to the convenience store of where Sherry had worked only just the night before to say, to be able to say legitimately that he'd been there, but he didn't, he didn't go there prior to any kind of analysis and take measurements or anything. And that he used just images from a single point of view, just one camera, multiple angles, right? Which is key. And we'll get there. And it ends with George's son coming on saying that he thought his dad was guilty, that he thought, my dad's in prison, he must be guilty. And now that he's older, he's 13 or so mm-hmm. when, they're, when they're filming this, and he says, well, maybe, maybe dad is not guilty. Maybe dad's been wrongfully convicted. And he, like it had really never occurred to him before. And I can see how... That might be a fine stance to take with a kid. That it's a very complicated situation, and I, yeah, I don't know. It's complicated, yep. and you know, his mom and dad are divorced, and I don't know what kind of tension there was there. Although she didn't seem to have much tension, no, except and, that she was very angry 
about the situation. Right. And she did say that the police had come to her and asked her to corroborate that he was indeed the robber at these convenience stores and that if she called Crime Stoppers, they'd give her $1,000 for turning him in. Yeah. And she didn't do it. And she didn't do it, even though she really needed the money. Right. Yeah. So there's definitely, um, I mean, not not the typical playing pawn with the kids, but you know, right. um, she's obviously still an ex-wife and, right. uh, you know, but how, how she chose to speak to the children. I mean, what else do you do? I well, mean, and, you know, until they're old enough to maybe consider that there might be some, well, and you know, I mean, she's, Got to come to the point where am I going to tell my kid that the police are bad and they... Exactly. You know, I you want your kids to trust the police. You yeah. want your kids to call the police if they're in trouble. You don't want them to not call the police because they're afraid they're going to end up in jail wrongfully like their dad. Right. Exactly. So it's a complicated it situation. Is a, it is a complicated situation. So it ends with George rapping in jail. And then their other series... Other episodes in this series include uh, blood spatter, cadaver dogs, and touch DNA, which I didn't really know what that was. It's a statistical DNA analysis that relies on deduction, which I'm like, well, that just sounds sketchy right from the beginning. But I recognize the bias in this episode, and so I'm willing to say there's probably more to those stories than what I've seen. I, I bet there than is. Than just reading the description of them. There, there's got to be more to that. There's got to be. Yeah. I mean, I thought they did a, a decent job of like showing uh, the hotel motel manager's perspective and this tension she went through a little bit. I mean, she was a yeah. character. She She was was by far the most entertaining part of the whole thing. But um, she was a bit of a character, but she definitely had a swing where she wrestled with some guilt and regret uh, about calling a Mm -hmm. little bit, but also had some plausible reasons why why maybe the video was wrong. Um, He wasn't much shorter. She knows that he kind of stands with his legs apart, you know, and, and, um, and the only reason that that seemed plausible to me is because I kind of do that. I tend to stand like that at counters and things. And so I would appear, if you're looking at a camera angle from behind a counter, I might appear far shorter than I am too. Right. Because we didn't have another camera angle. Right. Right. Well, and what the, what that, but the camera angle they were basing his height on was primarily the door. It was. Because there's marks on the door. But <sighs> he kind of was, was all hunched and whatever when he runs out. And yeah. it was kind of... So I don't know. I mean, I, I can see how there's some discrepancy there. And I don't know. That's Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to pass judgment either way. I'm not going to say he's for sure innocent. I'm not going to say he's for sure guilty. There you go. Because I, I really don't know. And there's stuff that wasn't covered in the documentary We'll get to that, too, Mm -hmm. right after this quick break. On the Story Song Podcast, we closely examine the story of famous story songs. We'll walk you through the lyrics you've heard a thousand times, but have never thought about. Leave it to us, because we overthink everything. Spread the word around. Guess who's back in town? Why is this my job? (laughs) Why is this on me now? I didn't even like those guys. (laughs) We discuss the history of the story songs you love. Show of hands. Who here knew that Riggs Springfield was Australian? No clue. The Wikipedia article started with, you guys, you're not going to believe this. (laughs) The Story Song Podcast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. So normally we talk about, is it true? 
But it's it's sort of a documentary, so it's sort of already true. Fair. But we're going to talk about Universal Truth, Patty Hearst, and Video Forensics a little bit. Let's do it. Universal Truths. Are there Universal Truths? So there's a Ask a Mathematician website, and they asked a physicist and a philosopher. And the physicist kind of said... Uh, cogito ergo sum, which is, I think, therefore I am. Yeah. So basically like, well, I, how much more can you say? It's, it's complicated. (laughs) That's, that's Uh, awesome. uh, Yeah. Which I'm like, okay, the physicist, now the philosopher had a lot more to say. Oh, I'm sure. They always have a lot more to say. (laughs) So the first option is, uh, not subjective relative. So, Things that require truth, no matter your perspective, like two plus two equals four. And then there's necessarily true, which are nothing can be both completely red and completely green at the same time. It is either completely red or completely green. The comments are what got me. Well, was, uh-huh. that's, that's interesting because okay. he keeps talking about things that are science. I just yeah, feel like the, the whole thing is upside down, you know, like he's talking about red and green and I'm like, well, but, but we can show what's completely red and completely green kind of, well, not green so much, but red, cause that's a primary. And so we can show, you know, whether it reflects or it absorbs that particularly wave of light. So yeah. I, okay. All uh, right. I'm going to stop right there. Cause it's about to get much worse than that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the commenters I thought had the the best response, which was, is it absolutely true that absolute truth does not exist? And I'm like, oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. That's the conundrum, man. It's like, can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? Yeah, that is. You that's know? kind of the conundrum, it's, right? I think that's kind of where we're at with universal truth. So I did a little more looking. Universality is the idea that universal facts exist and can be progressively discovered as opposed to relativism, which is relative to something else. This is true. So when you use it in the context of ethics, it means that it's true for all similarly situated individuals. For example, rights, like in the Declaration of Independence. So today, we like to think that the Declaration of Independence is a reflection of all citizens in the United States. Well, it was also true then, but slaves weren't considered citizens, so therefore they didn't have the same rights. So it was people of similarly situated individuals. Right. In practical speaking. Yes. Because really, I mean, if you read all men, really it speaks to the fact that they didn't believe that yeah. those who were slaves were actually people. Right. It's an even more, you know, harsh divide. Of, right. It's not even just citizens. It's, it's, well, and it wasn't it's us women who either. Are people. Right. It was all men, literally, that they did say all men. Yes. You know, and now we interpret and it now as we a say, men as in humanity. Right. Because, you know, 
they were wrong. <laughs> so, and they were wrong on a lot of things. And that's why we have to go back and kind of But they wrote it, it in such a way that it could be right still. And that's which the is beauty the, of that it. That is really like the genius of it. They were wrong in the way they worded some things, but the way they worded some things left it open to be right in the future. Exactly. It's kind of beautiful. It was kind of beautiful. I think what's important there is to say that, that, that it came from a, a good intention yes, with incomplete and false ideals right. about how that played out. Right. But the intention was there. Right. Um, it wasn't written for the fact of, you know, proposing oppression, right. Right. you know, which would be different, you know, but effectively. Well, and they were seeking to escape oppression themselves. Therefore, they were able to write these things in ways that were personal to them, but would later apply to people that they didn't really intend for it to apply to. But now we understand should have applied to them all along. Exactly. Yes. So in logic, that a universality is that in all possible contexts, it can be true without creating a contradiction. It's beyond time and place, and therefore, universal truth is what the state of the physical universe is based on. So they're eternal and absolute, theoretically. But exactly. We're, we're, not, <laughs> we're not capable as human beings of being able to decipher that or understand that. Not completely. No. Not completely. But we can be confident, you know, in a lot. We we can, but the more science we learn, the more we realize we're wrong about so many things. And that and that's the tension, isn't it? I mean, that's where the tension lies, is are we willing to accept both things to say there is something factual and we can keep finding out factual things and, and also we will never know it all and we will not know each complete context of each factual thing. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, because, you know, we, we rely on physics a lot in our world. We, we put our faith and trust and hope in physics, y'all. I mean, everything we do is so dependent on these laws being true. Right. Right? From cars to airplanes yeah. to everything. But we do keep expanding our understanding of how these things work. It doesn't mean that what we found was not true necessarily, although we have gotten it wrong. Right. It, so it doesn't mean that the absolute truth isn't there. It just means our understanding of it continues to grow right. and change. And yet at the same time that all of that is true, so is relativity. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, but relativity has its own set of things including its own, it's not relative. Everything's relative except light. What? Light is not relative. It's always what it is. And, wait, and What? Okay, <laughs> so we understand that only within the context of really the earth and right. what we can see from it. Well, <laughs> because theoretically, on the other side of the universe, if the universe has sides... You can have an absolute truth, perhaps, here on Earth that is not absolutely true in another place in the universe. Right. It's a similar environment. Like, there are, I mean, the theory does state that in other galaxies and other worlds, that there would be a different set of laws, a different set of physics that govern that kind of area. That is trippy, man. Right? That's like super trippy. Uh huh. 
That's super trippy. All right. Well, let's talk about Patty Hearst a little bit. Yeah, let's do because my brain hurts now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's not hurt less after Patty Hearst. <laughs> so in February of 1974, Patty Hearst was kidnapped at gunpoint from her apartment by a group of radicals called the Cybanese Liberation Army, the SLA. And she was an daughter of a of the guy who runs Hearst Corporation or ran Hearst Corporation. So she was an heiress, came from a wealthy family with a lot of influence. That is why she was targeted. Grant Fredericks mentions in the documentary, you know, just offhandedly, you know, we can't always trust video evidence because Patty Hearst was caught on video with her robbery. And I'm like, what? What about so, that now? Yeah. Hmm? So she was hmm? kidnapped. And in April of 1974, so just a couple months after she was abducted, she was part of an armed robbery at a bank. And she's caught on film. Now, she argues that she was brainwashed and abused by her captives. So she what didn't really want to be there. She wanted to be there. But she didn't want to be there. She only wanted to be there because she'd been brainwashed. And so she tried to use this as an excuse. So uh, two SLA members tried to steal an ammunition belt from a store. They followed the getaway car back to their safe house hiding place, whatever that they were staying at. Patty and several others escaped. They ran away and then they were they ran away for like a year and a half. They were evading law enforcement. So when she's finally caught and sent to trial, she tries to use this, I was brainwashed and, you know, that's why I helped them. And the, the jury didn't find it very convincing and still sent her to prison for seven years. But then President Carter commuted her sentence to time served and she was pardoned later by Bill Clinton. I, I I liked Grant. Let me tell you, I thought he seemed more believable, more scientific, more well-educated, more like the kind of advocate that I would want on my side. Mm-hmm. And then I started looking into Patty Hearst a little bit, and he's kind of with that offhanded comment saying, okay, so yes, it looks like she's robbing this bank, but she wasn't really robbing the bank. It was sort of under duress. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't know. Was it under duress? I mean, she's gone on to live like a life where she wasn't a criminal. Does that mean she didn't actually have criminal intent as a... So it's a different kind of trial. Right. It is. But and I we're think... going to talk more about her in our psychology section, Oh, yes. Section, we're right? going to get to that in the psychology okay. section. Mm-hmm. But, okay. you know, the video portion, I think he makes a good point, though. The point was the video didn't show you how complicated that complex situation really was. Okay. Because it was a complex situation on a video screen anyways. Right. Right. You're looking at a lot of factors already. Then you throw in everything you don't know about who's there, why they're there, everything. It's just, it's so much more complicated. So the video is not just some objective script of what's going on. All it says is I can show you what's happened in these moments. Right. And so... But what comes before and after and what's going through somebody's head, those things aren't necessarily visible. 
Right. Because we're catching it live like that. I mean, it's not the same thing as watching TV. I mean, we kind of, especially in today's world, I think we kind of watch TV. And so we think of video as being very objective, but we, we forget that there's a director who created, you know, all these shots and everything to make sure that the viewer has the eagle eye on it. Yeah. That and we sometimes have the information. they even pur- purposely deceive us so they can trick us. <laughs> but then by the time we know what's going on, we're back to, oh, we have the eagle eye. We know we're going to have the eagle eye on it. And so it mm. feels objective to us, even when there's like an unreliable narrator and things like that, mm. we still have an eagle eye on watching people's reactions, on all the way the characters play it. There's a lot going on to make sure it's really just telling the story they want told. Whereas opening a camera and hitting record, none of that is conspiring to make sure that the viewer has the eagle eye on that situation. Right. I, I like that. So what are some of the limitations of video? So video recording has become much more prevalent and is primarily the first thing that investigators want to see because Mm -hmm. it's a the bias of video is known or non-existent so the video might not have a bias of itself or at least we have an idea of it was only pointed this way it didn't see what was happening behind it things like that the size and coverage of the view makes the difference so if you're only have one angle on the door photogrammetry is going to be much more difficult to do precisely. Better resolution, as we mentioned before, is going to give you better results. So both in being able to identify faces or license plates, but also actual things that happen. So for example, if you have a bank teller who's counting money and you're only taking two images per second... (laughs) That's not enough because once you export it, you're only getting one frame per second. So I didn't, I didn't realize that, that it collects the information, but to export it and be able to view it, it brings the number of frames per second down, which I didn't know. I didn't know that either. Primarily in most cases, that's how it goes. So if you really want license plate identification, particularly on a moving vehicle, you need at least 15 frames per second. If you want to be able to identify it, at least eight frames per second. That is the absolute minimum. So I would suggest that if you're intent on surveilling your security footage, if you want that to be something that you can actually use, make sure your equipment is up to par. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which is easy to find these days. Most yes. things are above that. Right. So, And then I found an article, and it's obviously from an attorney's website, because they say, even if you've been allegedly caught on camera, I'm like, allegedly. allegedly. <laughs> so technicalities and other mitigating information can make that not a complete case against you, that there's has to be more to it than just the video footage. The video has to be obtained properly. It can't be flawed. For example, the timestamp should be correct. So change clocks whenever those time changes happen. Make sure that they're correct. Just because there's a video against you doesn't always mean that you're going to be in trouble. So for example, there was a man who was arrested 
for brandishing a weapon. And the judge went and looked at the video and said, no, he's clearly defending himself. And so it could be helpful to you. So they, just because they say they have video evidence against you doesn't necessarily mean that that's a bad thing for you. So psychology, psychology. Do you want to tell us about Patty Hearst? Well, we could talk a little bit about Patty Hearst. Okay. And then I also want to talk about eyewitness testimony. Yep. Okay. Um, well, so, okay. It's a sensitive subject to talk about it, but it's it's Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. That's kind of what we're referring to with the Patty Hearst thing, is we're saying that people who have been captured end up behaving in a way to help themselves survive the situation. Yeah. And in doing so, they make a connection with their captors. And in making a connection with them, they take on the similar beliefs and and behaviors of the captor. Um, because, you know, we, we as people, we are attracted to people in general, not romantically, but like we're attracted to people as friends, as whatever individuals. Pack animals. Right. We like yeah. to be with people who are similar. Now, there is one thing that actually totally overshines that, though. It outshines it. It's better. Okay. It's uh, sharing. People who disclose and share about themselves and have good um, reciprocation in their conversations, that is more important than being similar. More important. So you and I aren't going to get Stockholm Syndrome because we do a podcast together. (laughs) That might be a whole different sort of psychosis. Um, Okay. And you might be familiar... I would say most people are familiar with Stockholm Syndrome a little bit because we've all seen Beauty and the Beast. Well, we all have seen Beauty and the Beast, although I, I don't think for a long time we admitted that that's what that was. No. Um, <laughs> no. I don't think so. Yeah. The thing about Stockholm Syndrome is that really it's a matter of oppression and control. You are becoming like the other person so because they are controlling you. They're yeah. in okay. charge of that situation. And so it is very likely that somebody like Patty Hearst would end up participating in those things and maybe would start to hold some of those beliefs herself. Because when you are in a position where somebody else is in control of your life and you're stripped of everything, you're looking for any freedom you can have. And so there's some sort of really perverse freedom in taking on the behaviors and the, and the beliefs of those who are in control of you, because you are given some basic freedoms to walk to not okay. be chained up. Okay. Right? She yeah. walked into that place. Right. You know, she she was part of the team. She ran with them when they raided the safe I bet house. she could even go potty when she wanted to. Right. Or maybe drink water when she wanted to. Right. These things we take absolutely for, for granted. And so um, when those things are stripped away, you'd be amazed at what you might do to get some of that freedom. Mm. Now, in some cases, though, you know, that freedom, if you can keep your mind about it, But I mean, the cases of that happening, but anyways, you know, if you can keep your mind about it and, and get yourself some freedom, maybe, maybe act a little bit, Mm -hmm. then you might be given enough freedom that you could walk away. Or if you are given enough freedom to maybe then be sent out and separated enough that maybe you find your opportunity and go, oh my goodness, you know, it's a devastating kind of thing, but, um, it's not shameful Right. It's survival. So right. um, you got to do well, what you got to do. There was a certain amount of that with uh, Elizabeth Smart. Exactly. Too. Yeah. That, you know, they beat her down and told her she was worthless mm-hmm. to the point where she believed it mm-hmm. and was afraid to run away, afraid to go home to her very religious family, whom the, the her captors told her 
you know, she was worthless. They're not going to love you anymore. You're damaged. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the, the type of emotional abuse and emotional kind of torture right. um, is, is worse, worse than, um, than physical. Because somebody punches you in the face, it's like it's on. You right. know, I mean, not to say that, that domestic abuse that's physical isn't awful. What I'm saying is that there's usually almost always some sort of emotional component attached to that because somebody hits you, punches you in the face. This is why actually torture doesn't work the way most people think that it works. It does, it's not, the efficacy just isn't there as much as people want it to be there. Um, physical pain makes you angry and it pits you against your enemy. And, and in the same way, emotional kind of, um, tactics can also in group and out group kind of situation when we dehumanize and us versus them, look what they're doing to us, that kind of thing. But when somebody's speaking to you and speaking to your being, to who you are and tearing it down slowly, then your only way to survive is to believe that and then hope that they take care of you. Yeah. Say I'm willing to change, All right? To you make know, you to make you accept me, yeah. Right, right. Um, it's it's just a <sighs> horrible thing. It is. Um, horrible. You know, a lot of people in uh, emotional abusive relationships will tell you, "I'd wish they just punch me in the face." Because if they if they just hit me, I might get mad enough to defend myself. Yeah. But that emotional stuff is just it's those mind games, man. <sighs> Awful. Yeah. Awful. Yeah. It's a tough pattern to break too. If that's how you grew up with an abusive parent Mm -hmm. who was abusive in a psychological way rather than a physical way, it can be really difficult to not use those same tactics in relationships as an adult. Oh yeah. It builds your framework and then you don't understand. Yeah. How to break free of that. What Mm -hmm. does a healthy relationship really look like? It can be very difficult for people who've been emotionally abused to Mm -hmm. tell. But it's not impossible to overcome. Right. You can relearn those constructs. And a lot of people do. It just takes them some time, you know, into mid-adulthood or, you know, not mid-adulthood, but mid-20s is what I'm trying to say Mm. is, you know, I mean, it takes some time to rebuild constructs, but, you know, especially when that's happening at home, but it doesn't happen anywhere else, you know, most people kind of end up going... Uh, that's you're the right. weird one. Yeah. That's, that's not how this works. I can oh, tell. Now that I don't live in your house and I've gone to college and I've seen how normal people behave. Yeah. You kind of rebuild that <laughs> yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Um, Hopefully. If, if you're capable of doing if, so. If you're lucky, if you're not so damaged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's important to say a majority of people do. A minority of people come out of that. There's there's major effects, but we tend to think of, oh, if this happens in childhood, then this is going to happen. Not really so. We see big effects. We see a lot of people. We see you know percentages we don't like, but a majority of us kind of break free of a lot of that. Yeah, we do. Thank goodness. We do. Resilience is key. Resilience yeah. is key. I mean, it doesn't mean we won't have our own baggage with it. Um, it doesn't mean we won't have our own faults that are just, well, our own faults, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes it's not mom and dad's fault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, sometimes I don't need any help being some, <laughs> I can't blame them. I've done that all on my own, yeah, you know, yeah. and I have to re- take responsibility right. for that. So let's talk about memory bias and eyewitness testimony. So, Eyewitnesses can be some of the most compelling testimony that's given at a trial ever, mm-hmm. but they're very susceptible to issues. So 
they've done some research and it suggests that the accuracy of eyewitness testimony is dubious in a lot of cases because of the way it's, it can be very unintentional. The brain, we think of it as the brain has taken a video (laughs) that we're going to then watch and access, and that is not at all how memory works. It's much more like putting a puzzle together after the fact. Right. And that's called a schema. Okay. Yes. Right. It's a schema. That's what, that's what we do. And as we, you know, we, we kind of remember and we, uh, perceive and it's assimilated into our own structure of meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was Bartlett that called it a schema. Okay. Um, and it includes a great deal of like general knowledge that we take. And so when a recall is asked for, the participant in a study will take a few significant remember details and a general emotional attitude, and then they kind of fill in the puzzle, like you okay. said. So there's a lot more involved with the, you're not remembering objectively. Right. You're not, you're, it, you're take it in, then it goes into like, all of the stuff that's in there. And it's kind of like, I visualize it kind of like, have you ever played with like magnet dust? You know, Uh like the stuff, you know, when your kids were little and you went into like the office, doctor's office and they had a little table with the magnet dust in it and you could use the magnet underneath and Uh you could make the cars go through all the stuff. When you you have the man's head and you give him eyebrows and a beard and hair and stuff. Yeah. And you do all of that kind of stuff. I mean, a memory, it's like somebody shoots the, that situation into your eyeballs, into your brain, where all that memory dust and whatever it's attracted to just sticks to it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, if that, if that guy reminds you of a really ugly ex-boyfriend, then you might generally have an emotional attitude of contempt. Uh. Well, what if that contempt then kind of sticks to your memory of it, right? You kind of project a little bit of that on there. Um, it's kind of crazy. And then, I mean, there's just some objective studies out there that show that our, our memory, you know, just sort of, you know, deteriorates, you know, over the course of years. And so there was somebody um, that did a uh, an autobiographical memory study on himself. And basically, he was able to, over a course of five years, um, the number of events completely forgotten was about 20%. Okay. Five years, the number of events. So what he did, let me tell you, is he, is he recorded all of these things. Like he kept a journal of all these things, right? So mm-hmm. not only did he like see it, he wrote it, he looked at I me mean, he did all that. He studied, like he studied, he does what we basically do. But then over the course of five years, 20% of that he'd forgotten completely. Wow. Right? Um, and then most events couldn't remember it in all their details and recall deteriorated over time. Um, and that kind of was um, split up across like salience, emotional involvement and pleasantness. All of those things kind of impacted the ability to recall um, those events. And wow. so it's just, you know, how much does it hit you personally? Right. How much is it happy? How much uh, emotion is involved with it. Okay. Right. Um, and so there is a lot that goes on. Um, and so if you want to look at this, um, there are some great studies that kind of show the fallacies and the problems with, uh, eyewitness testimony that we'll have to kind of upload, um, to the, to the Facebook and all of that. Yeah. We'll do it Um, on social media. You can find us on Twitter at killer fun pod on Facebook Killer Fun Podcast, the intersection of crime and entertainment, or you can shoot us an email, killerfunpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll send you a link back. Yeah. 
So let's do that. And, and I'll let you see those. And, um, you know, the thing that I remember is that just because someone is overconfident doesn't mean they're accurate. <laughs> okay. So it's interesting that you bring that up because there was a story, Loftus, Miller and Burns in 1978, they did a study of trying to determine this and they showed people a slideshow about a car running a stop sign. Mm-hmm. And then they, gave them misinformation in the questions that they asked, which tells me that a lot of this isn't intentional. They're, oh, no, it's not intentional. Of, somebody asking a question isn't intentionally misleading them. So they would ask, how fast was the car traveling when it passed the yield sign? But it wasn't a yield sign. It was a stop sign. So not only are you telling them that it was the wrong kind of sign, but that they blew through it and that they were traveling at a high rate of speed. So when they would go back and remember this and they'd show them sets of photographs, did we show you the ones with the stop sign or the ones with the yield sign? When they'd ask them about a yield sign, even though they had originally been shown a stop sign, they always chose the yield sign yes. side. And that is the, well, the gateway to issues of suggestiveness and the problems in, in interrogations and such of witnesses or even, you know, potential suspects is that how easy it is to suggest truths to the person that then they ingest and then they're confident about those things. And that's such a problem. And that goes to the whole debunking the repressed memory thing and all of that kind of stuff. Which was huge in the 90s. Huge. Huge. Um, So it is important to know that, you know, traumatic events, um, emotionally intense, do tend to have better recall for us. But even that has its problems. Um, And so there was a um, Painus and Nader in 1989, they interviewed children who attended a school where a sniper had um, shot repeated rounds on a playground at an elementary school. Awful. Um, Awful. Absolutely awful. It was outside of apartment complex uh, that he shot from, and it was in LA in February of 1984. Um, So a passerby and one child were killed. 13 children and a playground attendant were wounded. So in the accounts of 113 of these children who were interviewed between 6 and 16 weeks afterwards, characteristic distortions uh, were, were shown. Children who were wounded tend to distance themselves emotionally from the event. Five did not even mention their minor gunshot injuries when interviewed. By Hmm. contrast, children who were not at school that day or who were on their way home tended to place themselves nearer to the event. Wow. Right? So there are some things we do know about the way people react to emotionality, kind of like that we can control for the bias in the video a little bit, Mm -hmm. but we can kind of filter the bias in some ways if if we're smart about it. Because... We, we could predict that these reactions would happen, that they were going to place themselves closer than they really were, you know, and those kinds of things. So it works in a laboratory. It works in real life. Eyewitness testimony is really kind of a fluid yeah. issue. Yes. Well, and it's interesting that you bring that up, that kids would place themselves because that was another thing that they talked about in this article that I read was that we have this strong desire for inclusion in the group. So when you have an event that happens to a bunch of people and they start talking about it, even before the police arrive, if they're talking about it together, they tend to have the same memories, Mm -hmm. even though they had different experiences. So somebody who wasn't there or didn't see it, literally thinks they saw it because they talked to somebody. Right. 
that did see it. And they literally remember seeing it because they had this desire, almost like Stockholm syndrome, to have a connection with another person Mm -hmm. over this traumatic event. It's so true. Fascinating. It's so true. So emotional, the timing of the interview is important. Whether they've talked to other people is important. All of these things. So in the case in Exhibit A with George Powell, I wonder, this is not something that we're given information about, I wonder if any of the convenience store clerks spoke to one another. Mm -hmm. Because they all said that the robber was shorter in stature than George was. Mm-hmm. And I'm I there's no way for us to know from what we were presented in the documentary to know whether all of these people had gotten together and talked about it and therefore right. they remember it similarly because they talked to one another or did they legitimately have an experience of a perpetrator who was shorter? Right. Than George. And that's, I mean, and it's not that necessarily you have to think, well, they must be wrong. It's just no. that there's things that have to happen to, to verify, you know, because, you know, it's like if you've got multiple people telling you the exact same story and using some similar language, like caution flag. Yes. Caution flag. You yes. know, like that's a problem. You know, that's a problem. And timing is a problem. When do you get to that witness to interview them? And then how do you approach it? So like, if you um, look at a study that was done, they did a study where they interviewed people, interviewed stressed witnesses <laughs> at the police interview that would happen like right afterwards. And ni- they remembered 93% of details. These are the children? No, no, no. This is another study. Oh, a different study. So they remembered okay. 93% of, of the details when these people after a, you know, after a robbery, basically. Okay. Um, at the research interview five months later, 88% of details. The accuracy of the less stressed individuals was lower, approximately 75% in both police interview and the later research really? interview. So see, the stressed inter- inter- individuals were like pretty super accurate, and then they deteriorated. The people who weren't really stressed, really weren't involved, was about 75% at the time and later. Okay. Um, so it's really important that you talk to those people who are emotionally distressed, but also that if you do talk to people who are literally not impacted by this. <laughs> yeah, they're not going to be nearly as Just accurate. Just you know what? Know what you're asking for. Okay. <laughs> All right. And then the can it happen, our real life section. I mean... Yeah, again, we're again, kinda... It's a documentary, but I'm going to talk about the photo modeling software um, and junk science, which we've yeah. touched on before. So... Somebody asked on ResearchGate if anybody was familiar with the photo modeling software or photo modeler, which is the brand name of that particular software. That's what Michael Knox used. And can it process a single photo with only 2D coordinates? So somebody answered that you can set like an arbitrary Y coordinate to be able to do that and that it was pretty good at doing it if you have an absolutely flat photograph. So if you're taking a picture of a building and it is completely flat, the windows are square, Mm -hmm. they're not a rhombus because you're at an angle, that it can do a pretty good job with that. So don't think that Michael Knox was using that software properly. Yeah, they said there was some worry about that because, A, he didn't have different angles, and you're absolutely 
at an angle for the camera view itself. So you don't have different. And that's why he was like, well, it's, it doesn't get much more objective than that. I'm like, And the photo he was talking about when he did that was skewed. I mean, you could tell where the the edges of a, you know, the one side of a window was Mm -hmm. shorter than the other side of the window because it was at an angle. I'm like, oh yeah, totally. I mean, this guy, this guy has never taken a selfie in his life, or else he'd know this. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, all of us know this. You put the camera a little higher. Uh You know what I mean? It hides whatever you know underneath your chin, and there's different things you can do to Uh like truly like use angles to make a different kind of appearance. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, and he really seemed very. He had a lot of faith that the software was accurate in the way he was using it. I even went and looked at their website and basically they said, you know, have two cameras, two pictures, and then the software can match those up. And ideally you'd actually want more than two pictures. Now, not just two pictures, one after another, right? which is how Michael Knox would argue. I did have more than one image. But they were in succession from the same angle, mm-hmm. not two different images from different angles of the same place. Right. Or more, theoretically, the more images you can have, the more likely you are to get a more accurate mm-hmm. representation. Here's something that the uh, documentary didn't point out. <laughs> Was they, yes, they used video evidence against George Powell. Okay dubious as it may have been but there was also a prison informant who claimed to have spoken to george powell and heard him confess to the robbery that's funny i thought so too because this guy gave this quote-unquote evidence this confession to police and then was able to get a better deal for himself because he gave information even though his case was unrelated because he was willing to snitch he got a bit of a better deal and what they didn't point out was that the doctors said that it was very likely that the jailhouse informant was schizophrenic paranoid delusional unstable and should have been in a psychiatric facility not the prison the whole time so there's still, you know, there's still very, there's uh, still stuff that we don't know, and that's why I'm unwilling to say for sure that he's innocent or that he's guilty, mm-hmm. because we have a very small picture in 40 minutes yeah. of what happened, and it's obviously much, much more complicated than that. Um, it does look like George Powell is going to get a new trial, hmm. and very soon. Hmm. And he may be released for a time while they wait for that to happen. Interesting. Yeah. So a lot of what he is talking about is junk science, that he's saying that junk science is what got him convicted. Right. Fair. Yeah. A fair assessment. Yeah. It's certainly possible. And most of that has to do with the video evidence and the falsified confession information which the 
jailhouse informant later came back and recanted and said, <laughs> he, I didn't even know him. Yeah. Well, uh, so there's no way he could have told me this stuff. <laughs> so Texas <sighs> passed a law in 2013, the very first of its kind in the entire nation to help combat this kind of stuff. It's called SB 344 or the junk science statute. And basically that says that you can ask for a new trial if new information comes to light, if new technology might exonerate you, or if the scientific evidence was false, misleading, or inaccurately applied. Mm -hmm. So you can ask for a new trial. The president of the National Center for Reason and Justice said that it's phenomenally important because it clarifies and uh, gives people additional due process rights. This is really important. That the only drawback is that it doesn't keep the junk science out of the courtroom in the first place. That it's only something that's applied after the fact. Right. Right. And a lot of junk science ends up in courtrooms and accepted because... Understandably, the judges aren't forensic scientists. They don't, if it sounds compelling, these people come forward, they present themselves as an expert, they've been hired, they have whatever credentials or, you know, real or not, dubious or not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because anybody can get blood spatter uh, uh, certified. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You go on the internet and you take an online course, and all of a sudden you've got a certificate that you printed out on your computer at home. <laughs> So, yeah, and I thought I was a bit conflicted through that whole section about the junk science law. Okay. Because I mean, no doubt there's junk science. Absolutely. Right. Um, But I I do think they mention it in in the show. But you do have to be careful because some things can get kind of thrown out with the bathwater. Yeah. That are not are not junk science, but maybe you've got junk experts or say you've got um, new science coming to light and, you know, it's making its way kind of through it. And sometimes that doesn't turn out well. A lot of times it does turn out well. We realize that we really have hit upon something. So I don't know. I feel like feel like he's right that um, there may need to be more um, policies in place to help in the courtroom, uh, especially with today's uh, access and technology and all of that stuff. But I think actually Texas did the right thing. I think the only sure thing they could do, the only confident they think they could do was to create a law to help on the back end of that. Right. But in the meantime, it's going to be up to defense lawyers and judges to vet properly and really, and the prosecution as well. All of these lawyers, all of them need to do their job to make sure what they've got going on in the courtroom is, is appropriate. You know, I mean, we are super good at the policies we have in place about, you know, fruit from a poison tree. Did you have a warrant for that? Was it collected properly? We are really good at that. If we just had policies about vetting and corroborating uh, forensics, right? Um, I think it wouldn't be that long before they're all not experts in forensics, but they'd be experts in vetting it. Oh, that's fair. The lawyer's not a cop, right? But they understand. 
They understand the whole thing. Well, a lawyer's not a forensic science, but scientist, but they they know enough to understand. Yeah. I think it's possible they could do some things, but I think if they make some kind of junk science law where they try to they try to determine for the scientific community right. what makes something, you know, well, well or maybe a, maybe maybe it's not a junk science law that where they determine what is junk science. Maybe they have a junk science that says something about corroboration or mm-hmm. efficacy of the techniques and how they're used. You have to have more than one expert, you know, using different techniques to mm-hmm. verify the same information, something to that effect it might be more helpful, mm-hmm. but I don't know exactly what that looks like. Cause I'm neither a forensic specialist or a police officer right? or an or attorney lawyer or a judge or any of these people. <laughs> but I just feel like as good as they do with certain policies, I think they could probably facilitate some good policy. Yeah. I I absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then lastly, so we were talking about the junk science and shortly after that law was passed, there's a man, Stephen Mark Cheney, and he was found guilty of killing a Dallas couple in 1987. And his guilty verdict was determined because two ondinologists dentist basically said that he left a bite mark in the arm of one mm-hmm. of the victims and that the de- one of the dentists said it was a one in a million chance that somebody other than Cheney had left the mark and looking back knowing what we know now that is absurd yeah that skin is malleable that marks can be left on a body that look like teeth marks but are not or were made by teeth but don't look like they were there is there's just too many factors and it's very 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 subjective so in 2015 he hired an attorney and looking at all this new evidence they were able to prove that the evidence against him was junk science that there was no real concrete evidence against him because the science wasn't accurate. Right. So they may have thought it was accurate in 1987. Sometimes we get it wrong. Yes. We just, we do. Sometimes we get it wrong. Yeah. But they let him go free and he was still officially a guilty man, but they let him out of prison. And then the criminal court of appeals went through and did a intense study of his case and looking over it. And they said, actually, this proves him innocent. And he was completely exonerated and was given two and a half million dollars because he was wrongfully incarcerated and gets a stipend for the rest of his life from. Well, pre- good. And, you know, good. And, and that's kind of where I'm at with it. Good. Let's, if we make a mistake, it's okay to make a mistake. I mean, it's terrible for this man. He spent yes. a very, very long time in prison. He doesn't have a lot of animosity. I mean, I guess two and a half million dollars will help. I'm and, sure it helps. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that you're right. We have to, we have to correct our missteps right. in those ways. And um, I think as long as we can do that, you know, we're doing the best we can. Right. You know, uh, right. and now we have even better, better methods of, of supporting, you know, publishing studies. You know, even now we, we try to be better about 
And so that's what I'm saying about these policies. I think just these policies need to be in place about it. But, you know, that was pretty accepted for for a while. Yeah. For a long while. Yeah. But we got to correct those missteps. So that's, that's they did right. good. They yeah. did good. I, I can appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I, I never have really have a problem with people being wrong. I have a problem with people unwilling to admit that they were wrong. Oh, ain't that the truth? <laughs> All right. So next time we're going to look at the Netflix original series Dead to Me. Yay! <laughs> Which is fun. And we're not going to look at the first episode. They're pretty short. Yeah, they are short. They're, you know, like it's like a half hour comedy dramedy ish. Yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll get into all that next time. Yeah. We're going to look at the first 3 episodes. Yep. So Catch up on those or read up on those and join us again in a couple of weeks. Yes. It's going to be fun. Yes. All right. Thanks for choosing us today. We'll see you next time. Forge audio. Dream it. Build it. Share it.